Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung and glad to have you with us. Grateful for our sponsor, Crossway, and want to mention a new book by Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm sure most of the listeners know of Johnny, Johnny and Friends Ministry, really one of the great, great leaders. And uh, if there's someone to look up to in life, Johnny Erickson Tata fits the bill along with her wonderful husband. So this is a new book, Songs of Suffering, 25 Hymns and Devotions for Weary Souls. If you know Johnny at all, you know that she's had a life that the Lord has given her of more suffering than most, and yet has acquitted herself so well. And you know that she loves hymns. So this is a collection of hymns and devotions where she guides the reader through her own experiences, painful seasons, but also praise to God. So 25 hymns with sheet music, devotions, photography. So it's a really unique book, would be a great gift and helpful for those who are hurting. So pick up a copy, Song of Songs of Suffering, wherever you get books, or you can visit crossway.org. And if you sign up for a Crossway Plus account, you get 30% off this book. My guest today is none other than Dr. D.A. Carson, if I may. I will call him Don, although many have called him the Don. And uh, we are going to walk through many, we don't have time for all, but many of his books. And one of the things that Don is to be commended for is he is not eager to talk about himself. And so this is uh, humble of him to come on and talk about his books, a little bit about himself, but about his books and himself through these books. So, Don, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. My privilege. Give us a little update. You're, you, you, of course, taught at Trinity for decades and uh, founded president of the Gospel Coalition, uh, traveled internationally in almost astronomical, if you added them all up together, the miles would probably be astronomical, the number of times you've traveled. And uh, now what are you doing in this season of life, in your 70s? What are you doing? What are you working on? Well, I'm no longer a faculty member at Trinity. Um, I still have one or two folks um, that I'm trying to shepherd through the uh, the last stages of a PhD program, and uh, I am working part-time still for the Gospel Coalition. Right. Um, on the writing front, uh, we're in the final stages of um, completing the manuscript for the dictionary of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. A number of years ago, Greg Beal and I did a commentary yeah. on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Now there are four of us who have put together a dictionary, and um, that should be off to the press by the end of this year and come out next year. Uh, other things Fantastic. are farther down the pike. It's great. Uh, so m- maybe I'll just ask this as a very general question as we get into your books. How did you become a Christian? Ah, uh, I'm one of those people brought up in a strong Christian home who cannot place mm. conversion at a definite time. 
I made a public confession of faith when I was five. Um, but I suspect I was merely trying to um, catch up with blessings that were showered on my older sister. Um, I, I struggled with a lot of these things uh, more personally when I was in second year university. So one of the things, I have a mental checklist of things to ask God someday. And one of them is, when did you save me? Huh. And I suspect he will say, from before the foundation of the earth, my son. Um, I don't remember not knowing the gospel. Um, my father was a church planter in French Canada. Um, my earliest memories are sitting in the bathtub being told Bible stories. Um, mm. Naaman and the Jordan River is very effective in the bathtub. Ah, um, I have to remember that. So, so you could have asked me for a definition of the gospel that would have passed muster when I was five or six, but it, it didn't reflect any profundity on my part. It reflected the fact that I had a family that loved the Lord, and we had family devotions together, and learned to pray at our parents' knees, and and, and, and so on. But um, I suspect that somewhere between the age of five and second year university, um, the Lord did a transforming thing in my life. But just when it was, I have no idea. So uh, that's a good segue to talk about uh, not, certainly not your first book and not your longest book, one of your shorter books. And that's the book you wrote about your father, and his ministry, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And I've had occasion to tell you this before, Don, and I'll, I'll just repeat it here publicly, that th that book, so I assign that book when I teach pastoral ministry at RTS Charlotte, and inevitably, and then I have to, they have to write a short reflection paper on it, and inevitably many of the students say not only is that their favorite book in that course, many of them will say that is the favorite book they had to read in all of seminary. And, uh, I, you know, I, I've read now scores of these short reflection papers, and so many of them will write about, I read this book in tears, or this reminds me of my father who was a minister, or if only I could be uh, like Don's father, I would be so pleased. Uh, I read the book and I had to have my wife read the book, and we are now reading it together out loud. It has had a, a profound effect. I want you to know that, and people find it very realistic and inspiring. So thank you for writing the book. What? When did you know you wanted to write a book about your father, and what was the experience like to write about someone that you had known your whole life? It was not my plan to do so. I was not um, waiting for Dad to die, thinking, now I'm going to get his manuscripts. So right. I, I just wasn't thinking in those terms. And um, uh, for various reasons, my, my brother became the executor of my dad's papers, partly because I was 800 miles away, and he was relatively nearby. And um, Dad had never talked about his journals, but Jim, my brother, and I came to the conclusion that if anything was to be done, with these papers, I was probably the one to do it. So when I got all of this stuff, box loads of journals covering years and years and years, um, I began to read through them just to see if there was anything that 
could be turned to spiritual use. And the best parts of the book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, are really transcriptions of his journals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and once I read enough of them, I saw that there was something here that was valuable, partly because in terms of Western evangelicalism today, so much of it was countercultural. Um, he just wasn't thinking in terms of being a big shot or being a hero. He just didn't think in those terms. Uh, all of his categories were in terms of faithfulness and perseverance, and, and um, most of his life he preached to vast congregations of between 15 and 45. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, he, so he viewed his own life in many ways as, as a failure. Um, that's not how others saw him, but that's how he saw himself pretty frequently. And therefore he also fought uh, discouragement and... Um, and, and, and then his best moments in some ways came to the top when my mother contracted um, uh, her, her final years of, of mental problems and challenges and so mm-hmm. on. So um, starting about the age of 72, she began to lose it and died at 81. And uh, his, his handling of his wife during those years was immeasurably Christian. It was um, faithful, happy, thankful, non-bitter, um, gracious for the privilege of service. Um, and that, that's a heritage that, that doubtless stamps the rest of our family without it being preachy. It was just the way Christians do things. And um, so all of those things together um, prompted me eventually to sit down and write it because so much of it was there it didn't take me more than three or four months once i set my mind to it and um and the rest you know it's such a wonderful <clears throat> book and you know you have a great paragraph it's really poignant at the end which you described so well the the oxygen vainly venting and there were there was no public parade there were no front page newspaper articles the world didn't take note of your your fi- father's final breaths, but the the only audience that mattered, the Lord Jesus knew, and there was rejoicing in heaven. Uh, I, I I read that in my class, and it's very moving. One of the things that comes out in the book, and you just alluded to it, is that at various times in your dad's ordinary ministry, he experienced the the, the things that that all of us experience at times uh, feeling betrayed, uh, perhaps more than an average amount of self-recrimination. In fact, you sort of allude that maybe he he would have been better not to be so hard on himself. Were you aware of that as, uh, as either a child or as a young adult? Were you aware that your father was often so discouraged and felt like a failure when to you, it probably seemed like, this is my dad. He's so faithful. He's preaching the gospel each Sunday. Did, did you know what he was wrestling with inside? Not when I was young. By the time I was a student myself, I began to catch on a bit. And later on, we could talk about these things man to man. But my parents adopted the practice of shielding us, us kids, hmm. from the worst things. Um, one of the stories I told in the book 
uh, occurred when I was in uh, second year seminary myself. And um, it was a course on Baptist history in Canada. And dad played a part in that, in, in that he had been pretty badly treated by one person who was uh, mm -hmm. magisterial in his abilities, who was uh, influential, powerful, and so on. And, um, and uh, the lecturer finished telling the account and giving the dates and providing documents and all the rest. And he said, one of the first things I want to see when I get to heaven is Tom Carson's crown. Hmm. Well, I had never thought of my father that way. Right. But the, 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 the next time I got home, um, 300 miles away, I, I said, Dad, I've been learning some things about what happened in 1948-49. Um, you figure predominantly in them. Is that what happened? He said, well, what did they tell you? So I related what I yeah. had been told. And he said, well, that's pretty close. And I said, well, how come you never told me? How, how come? Well, I don't think any of us kids has, has, has heard this before. He said, you must understand that your mom and I made a vow a long time ago with respect to this particular magisterial preacher that, mm -hmm. that had caused so much of the trouble. We made a vow that said, we would never, ever say anything negative about that man in public. Mm. And we have kept our vow. So that sort of thing reveals an enormous yeah, amount of self-discipline and self-awareness and concern for eternal things. Um, yeah, it's really commendable. What, what, how do you reflect? So, so Don, you're not telling secrets here, you're a generation older than me, but now I'm in my 40s and there's fully a generation younger than me just starting out into ministry. Uh, and, and I'm sure every generation looks back and sees some things that are good and bad about the generation to come. But one of the things that, see, that does seem so objectively different is your parents' generation, the silent generation, the greatest generation, Perhaps there was a danger sometimes of just stiff upper lip and not, you know, letting out some of their own struggles. But there was also something wonderfully refreshing. You see this as, you know, the world is is noting the, the passing of the Queen in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this, this sort of reserve that I don't have to show, I don't have to turn my insides inside out for everyone to always know in all the the whole world is a platform the whole world is my youtube channel how do you reflect on that because you've been connected to younger generations students training for years and years and i've heard you many times say how encouraged you are by the new crop of students and so you're you're certainly not looking wistfully everything was better in the past but how do you compare your father's generation with younger generations who have opportunities for self-expression and platforming that older generations couldn't even have fathomed? What, what, what are the opportunities? What are the risks as you see it? Well, let, let me back off one stage, if I may. It's not just a generational thing. There's also a cultural thing. Mm. My mother was born in London. My father was born in Northern Ireland. They're British. They're not Canadian not by 
background, though they spent most of their lives in Canada, and certainly not American. So part of it is a cultural thing. Um, uh, to let it all hang out is much more likely to take place in Spanish parts of the world, let's say, right. than in East London. Um, so, so part of it is generational, as you say, and it's worth asking those questions. But, but, but part of it is cultural. They're, the very thing that seems like a disciplined reserve in one party uh, is seen in other parties as um, um, too private, too, mm -hmm. too, too stoical, not candid enough. And um, so uh, on the negative side, you hear almost every interviewer on radio or television uh, re refer to some event in the interviewee's past. And, and the question is, how do you feel about that? Or you've, you've just put, us aside, put down the, the, the winning shot at uh, the Labour Cup. How do you feel about that? But that question, not how do you think about it, or what do you make of it, or right. what's, how do you feel about it? As if the most important thing is how you feel, not what you think, or the disciplines that have gone into it, or whatever. It seems to me that right. is a formula that encourages too much self-focus. So, Raz, I can appreciate the honesty and the candor, not least of a Johnny, whom you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. She does so in a way that is simultaneously revealing and self-effacing. That's a yep. mark of a yep. Christian. Mm -hmm. But we've got the self-revealing part down in the culture. We haven't got the self-effacing part down very well. And, um, and, and, and so I'm forced to, 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 to side with my parents on, on, on this one. Um, this, the, the, the privacy thing can be uh, a form of idolatry, but it can be a form of um, of disciplined determination to have the focus off me, right, and on the Christ who brought me here, right. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about some of your books. So we started with this one. Uh, for the love of God. So you've written a couple of books, and Lord willing, you'll get to. I think. I think there's some others to finish off the McShane readings. But it. I have so many times recommended to people when they say, "I want. I want a daily devotional, and I want something that I can read in a few minutes. But I want something with some some depth to it, some meat to it. Uh, it's not to say that the other kinds don't have their purpose." But many of the devotional genre is, you know, a little story, a little hook into a Bible verse at the end, where your books on Scripture are really meaty but accessible reflections on the Bible chapter for the day. Uh, how did you go about writing those? And uh, I ask somewhat selfishly, I'm, I'm working on a, it's kind of a mini systematic theology, kind of a, a devotional thing that's going to be sort of like yours, but with systematic topics rather than exegetical. And on the one hand, it's, it's easier to write because you can go in and out of it. You can put it on the shelf for a while and then come and you do the next chapters and you just, but on the other hand, it's, it's very difficult. It requires a lot of discipline 
And it's it's not like other writing projects where you can get on a roll and you look at the clock and five hours went by and you just cranked out 3,000 words. These devotional things, if you do them well, are are really challenging. Each one has to have its own arc, its own structure to it. Did you enjoy the process of, of writing those? And what was your what was your research that went into doing 365 of those for two volumes? Well, the topics chosen were determined by the machine reading list. Right. Um, it, it's in four columns, and I've done two of the columns. I've started working on the other two. Eventually, if God gives me strength, I'll finish volumes three and four. And that way there wonderful. will be a meditation on every chapter in the Bible and double meditations on all the New Testament chapters and Psalms. And, um, and there have been times when I've been doing those pieces while I've been doing other things. So I've just squeezed an hour out of the day or two hours out of the day and, and, mm-hmm. and done another one. Um, but, but there have been times when um, uh, I made them part of my own devotional life. So I extended that period, and and the the passage was chosen by the chart, but um, I thought through, prayed through, worked through what it meant in its own context, what what I thought I should be getting out of it, and wrote it up as part of the discipline of the day. Um, so yes, I did enjoy it, but um, as you can say, um, it it can be quite time-consuming. Uh, and so I, with illnesses I've had in recent years, I haven't finished off volumes three and four yet. I've, I've got to March in both volumes, and uh, I hope to get to December eventually. Well, we're, we're praying for good strength and health, because those books have, uh, we have them in our home, and I've read them, and my, my wife's reading them. My oldest son just went off to college, and one of the gifts I gave him when he left was those two volumes and said, be a great discipline to read one of these pages a day. I can't, I can't claim whether he is or isn't yet, but we're, we're trying to put that in front of him. Uh, Don, did, when you sat down to write those, did you pull up sermons and research or just from your knowledge of things, you more or less looked at the text and had things to say? You're one of the few people, because I've heard you do a lot of short devotionals before TGC meetings, council meetings, board meetings, other things. And uh, I'm probably unspiritual in that often when I hear people do a little five-minute, ten-minute devotional, it's not all that interesting. Yours are always interesting. You always have a new thought, a new idea, or something said in a, in a profound way. Did you do a lot of research to write each of those chapters, or you just sat down and looked at the text and stuff started to flow? It varied. Um, there are times when I purposely set aside um, preparatory time in terms of commentary reading and theological reflection, pulling a systematics volume off the shelf or whatever. Um, But very often it's a function of my broader reading in any case. Uh, I do read widely, and and, and so it's part of the overflow. Um, Moreover, my first call, in some ways, is, is not to being a professor, but, but to being a pastor-preacher. Um, mm. I, I planted two or three churches. I, 
I've been preaching since I was about 20. Um, so, so my mind happily runs into um, lines that a pastor might well trace out himself. So um, uh, I didn't have a set way of doing things. It's not as if in every case I spent a few hours looking things up in a commentary. In some cases, it, it, it flowed right out of the, the text. Um, but, but in other cases, I did quite a lot of work in advance. It, it, it varied enormously. If, if, um, if you're going through Zechariah, probably you have to do more preparation time than if you're going through John. Um, right. That sort of thing. So you mentioned John, and, uh, well, people can't see this because you're listening to a podcast, but I'm holding up the Gospel According to John, the Pillar New Testament Commentary, one of Don's uh, most well-known books, and on almost any commentary list, when they list the best commentaries on John, they'll rightfully list this one. Uh, How long did it take you to write this commentary on John, and what... So I'm not a, I'm not a, I did a, my doctorate in history. I didn't do it in New Testament. I love commentaries. I read them every week for sermons. The idea of sitting down to write a commentary feels tedious to me. How long did it take you to do this really magisterial work on, on John? And did it ever feel tedious when you were going through it? In some ways, that one's irregular in that I did a PhD that focused on Johannine studies and Jewish background and so on. So I, I had a pretty good grasp uh-huh. of the relevant literature in the case of, of John. Um, different is Matthew. I had not done uh, a significant work on Matthew before I came up with the Matthew commentary. Uh-huh. And um, so, so the pattern of preparation was, was quite different in the two cases. Um, both of them took me, or I should say rather, each of them took me about a year and a half um, but it was a year and a half after spending years and years and years in the John case. In the Matthew, it was a year and a half after spending about um, another year, another year and a half doing background study and so on. Uh, I learned from F.F. F. Bruce. Well, I asked him once uh, how he went about writing a commentary. He said he started off by taking notes on whatever book he was going to work on, Ephesians or whatever. Um, and, and when he had pages and pages and pages of notes, as he put it, when I have a stack that high, um, then, then I start writing. Now, I haven't done that for everything, but, um, but I've done it for quite a few things. That is, do enough work on the exegesis that, that I, 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 I would begin with one foolscap page per verse. And that could become two pages, three pages, six pages, ten pages if it were technical background, Greek stuff. I had a code in the margins so the various sections hmm. could be uh, put together. And so uh, I, I have uh, hundreds of pages of notes on the Johannine epistles, for example. And I'm about half finished that commentary. But, but I didn't start writing the commentary until the research was basically done. And... Um, then in that case, it got delayed for all kinds of reasons, and I've got to update the research. But, but, um, but, but, to, 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 you don't you don't start a commentary by picking up a pen and begin right, right. with the first word. Uh, you know, at least I don't. And um, so, so I I'm a firm believer in getting a lot of work done first before you actually start the actual writing up of the final draft. 
in this series, the, the there are a few series, you know, sometimes you get a series and there's a, a few good commentators in them. And then there are some series like this pillar one, which are uh, almost across the board. Maybe I'd have to look. It might be everyone, but just a, a very strong commentary series. And one of the things that I love about, well, I'll, g- I'll give you two things. So this is 700 pages, so it's not a small book. But considering how long some of the John commentaries are, you, you really restrain yourself to come in at, you know, 600 pages of text. Two, two things that I appreciate, and, and it's because I find them rare in commentaries. One, you weren't afraid to talk theology. You didn't let, it wasn't a systematic theology book, but you weren't afraid to move from exegesis to theology and look at, and and in John in particular, it's, you need to be able to do that and talk about how does this intersect with the later Trinitarian and Christological formulas to come. And so that was really good. And two, you're obviously well conversant with the literature, but my here's my pet peeve, a complaint I have as a busy pastor looking at commentaries, is I get very tired of the commentaries that are really nothing but commentaries on the other commentaries, and an exhaustive word study on this word and on the next word, and then you need to you need to interact with every single person who's ever commented on this verse. And I sometimes say, tongue-in-cheek, that many commentaries could be one-third shorter if you just, you just agreed at the front end, the person that we think wrote the book, that the, the history of the church said wrote the book, actually wrote the book, and the version that we have is more or less the version that he wrote, because so much of the commentaries get filled up with redaction criticism, and can we really trust that this, was this a later interpolation? You studied, you did your PhD on this. Was it hard to restrain yourself and do something at a reasonable length, or did you find yourself tempted to want to clear the field of everyone who ever came into the Johannine neighborhood? No, in large part, I agree. I, I sympathize with your, uh, your your feelings in this area. Um, if you want a commentary on John or Matthew or to Peter or whatever, then it needs to be first and foremost a commentary on that document. Um, but depending on the level at which the material is being written, uh, something is to be said for giving some representative examples of how you mm-hmm. would go about answering this sort of question or this sort of doubt. And the trick is to make a judgment call on on what to include and what to exclude. And that will depend on the nature of the series and uh, how many pages you've been given, who your envisaged readership is, and, and, and so on. Um, in the case of the Pillar series, I wrote the specs for it. The publisher let me get away uh, with that. That helps. And what, yeah. And, and what, I, what I say to the contributors to that series is I want it to be uh, accessible and readable, uh, I wanted to focus on the text so that you self-consciously place yourself under the text, not as a judge over the text. Uh, I want it to be edifying. Um, I, I want it to be obvious that you're writing as a confessing Christian. Um, and so on. So I specified all of those things, and within certain parameters of length and, 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 and so on. So um, as it turned out, I probably wasn't the only one who felt that way because the series has done fairly well. I mean, the, Mm-hmm. People, people still tell me that they pick up the pillar commentaries among the first commentaries they get when they start to work on another book. 
So uh, we're, we're, we're another chap and I have started a, a, a pillar Old Testament commentary series now, and um, most, ah, most of the contracts have gone out, and the first volumes will be coming in in the next year or two. So um, I hope that I'll, I'll pass this off eventually. I won't live long enough to see the the end of it, but um, but it's coming, and uh, and and it's, it's worth saying in passing. Um, that couldn't have been done in my father's generation. There, there weren't enough writers around who had a combination of exegetical training, theological noose, and um, uh, it, it's. We, we speak of the decline of, the, of Christendom and the decline of, of uh, Christian faith in the West, but in some ways, it's stronger than it was fifty or sixty years ago. If you judge by the number and quality of books that have been written in the last mm-hmm. 20 years compared with, let's say, 1930 to 1950. And um, so we're reaping the the, the, the harvest of, of those who have gone before and on whose shoulders we stand. So I, uh, I, I don't have a formula, but, but we purposely aimed the Pillar series to be a mixture of exegetical rigor, contemporaneity, um, a theological noose, uh, some interaction with uh, historical theology and systematic theology, certainly an interaction with biblical theology, where it fits in the Bible storyline, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and yet make it edifying so that uh, ordinary people uh, are being brought close to God by meditating on the text in a reverential and knowledgeable way. Well, you certainly did that with the John 1, and so the Lord give you strength to write even more commentaries. Uh, I want to piggyback on something you just said, Don, about the state of the church. In some ways, it's easy to multiply bad news, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, any number of scandals or problems in the church. And yet, there are other sorts of indicators that ought to be encouraging to us. I think I've gotten this right. I've heard you say before, many years ago, that you were extremely encouraged by the up-and-coming generation of students that you had in the classroom, that men and women training for Christian ministry, eager to learn from the past, eager to be orthodox, to have good theology, not an axe to grind, uh, committed to the local church, that by and large, and I've certainly found that with the students that I have at RTS, you you have, I want to go to this book, which is the first big, well, and it is one of your biggest books, but I remember reading this when I was in college, The Gagging of God, Christianity Confronts Pluralism. And you have a section in here where you're commenting on Mark Knowles' Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. I'll just read a few sentences. Uh, So you talk about how Knoll rightly excoriates the anti-intellectualism that characterizes a wide swath of contemporary evangelicalism. So you say, yes, Mark, you're on to something. There is certainly, in many parts, a scandal of the evangelical mind. But then you say, I worry less about the anti-intellectualism of the less educated sections of evangelicalism than I do about the biblical and theological illiteracy or astonishing intellectual compromise among its leading intellectuals. Later in that paragraph, in the main, they think like secularists and bless their insights with the odd text or biblical cliche. And then the next paragraph, you say the fault is not their own. 
Above all, the problem lies in the pulpit. Too few preachers have married content and passion that they have taught their people to think biblically and love and honor God passionately. The books on many church bookstalls are a disgrace. Thousands of pages of, this is great, Carson, sentimental twaddle laced with the occasional biblical gem. So I think this came out in 1996. Have things gotten better on either front? Or do you think that assessment is still largely true of both intellectual scholars and the average pulpit and pew in 2022 versus 1996? In some ways, it's both. Hmm. Um, there are several things that have come along, to just restricting ourselves to the Western world, to North America for the, for the time being. The impact of um, T4G and TGC and other movements mm -hmm. um, has, has emboldened a rising generation of young preachers to uh, handle the text expositorily, to try to think synthetically, um, to, to hold a flag, to be, be full of the, the joy of the Lord, the, the, the impact of John Piper, for, for example, holding up a model of, 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 mm -hmm. of joy in, in Christian service and so on. Um, all of these things have left a mark in terms of thousands, probably tens of thousands of young pastors. Uh, in the Acts 29 church planting movement, and uh, we, we all know that these things are really significant, and, and, and the, their, their long-term impact we won't probably be able to discern accurately for another 50 or 60 years. We need to get some historical perspective on it. On the other hand, people today are debating whether evangelical is even a useful term today. Right. Um, as far as I can see, one of the reasons why people doubt it is because the matrix in which evangelicalism is discussed varies from person to person. Some definitions of evangelical come out of church history. Um, you try to follow what groups have generated what groups, which have generated what groups, which have generated contemporary evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Where did evangelicalism go in the Southern Baptists, for example, and so on. Um, others have a definition of evangelicalism that is based on um, social science studies. You, uh, how many of you are evangelicals? Put up your hands. Now we know how many people call themselves evangelicals. What do you think about tick off the box, tick off the box? Yeah, that's right. And it's a social studies group. Um, others are, are, are trying to get a definition in terms of, um, in terms of politics. Uh, when I, I've talked to secular media people and just start to talk theology, they all want to know what I think about Trump. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and I don't think any of that is, is useful because there are lots of people um, uh, who, who can put up a, a hand and say, I'm an evangelical, and, and not be constrained by theological conviction. And others who are theologically evangelicals who never use the term because they have bad associations with it. Lots of, of, um, of, of conservative Lutherans are evangelical, but they don't call themselves that. Right. Some Reformed people would never call themselves evangelical. And when you remember that, that um, gospel is another term for evangelical, Tim Keller likes to say that in, in New York City, um, an evangelical is a Protestant jihadist. Um, that's not exactly what I mean. Um, so so it, it seems to me that although it's worthwhile taking into account all of these, these possible backgrounds to generate our definition, 
you've got to have a, gen- a, a definition of evangelicalism that begins by asking, what does the Bible say the evangel is? That at least gets you back to the text. There might be some disagreements about the interpretation of the mm-hmm. text, but it gets you back to the text. And, um, and that is the place to begin. That's why I am not eager to lose the term. Uh, in, right. in his last years, Carl Henry kept debating whether or not evangelical was a term that was worth uh, maintaining. But he, he used to come back in, in discussions we had to the fact that at the end of the day, it's it, unlike the term fundamentalism, for example, evangelicalism is a biblical word. And you don't want to lose biblical words. You, you want to see right. how they work in Scripture. So, um, in that sense, I think we've lost something. We've, we've broadened our possible bases for defining evangelicalism. I think that's got worse. I think there is a, a widening number of so-called evangelicals, of self-defined evangelicals, who don't know what the evangel is in any biblical sense. And that's, that's confusing. It's hard to cope. Um, uh, and it, how to respond to it all varies on different parts of the country. Right. Um, so I, you asked me, are we losing or are we gaining ground? And the answer is yes. Uh, it's, it's confusing, but I think that's the truth. Uh, so this book, Gagging of God, Christianity Confronts Pluralism, came out in the mid-90s and uh, won various awards and was well-received. Uh, it has a wonderful picture of, of Don here with a very nice mustache, which uh, has uh, the mustache has come back into into usage with, uh, I see now, young men in my seminary class with the same sort of little pencil-thin mustaches, so it all comes around. But it seems to me, Don, that this book was speaking to a particular time, and for, it seemed like if you would have asked somebody 10 years ago, they might have said, oh yeah, I read The Gagging of God 15 years ago, that was a good book, nobody really talks about postmodernism anymore, and we're on to other things. And yet, now with the rise of the various critical theories that trickle down and really have been there in the academy all along, but just about the time some of those, and you've said this before, were getting passe, just about the time in the academy that people were maybe getting tired of talking about Foucault and and Derrida, then all of a sudden it explodes in a popular level and even in the church. So, uh, for example, I won't read this whole paragraph that you have in here, but you describe a, a possible scene of a young woman going off to university, and there she is in one of her classes, and the professor doesn't deny any of the things she says are true about being a Christian, but he quickly relativizes all of them and says, well, you think that you know, be, because, of, because you're Western or because you speak English, or because of your upbringing, or I don't know if you said because you're white, but various ways, he's never denied one of the things she said, or intellectually tried to refute it, but she walks out of that class feeling like, wow, I I guess I have no reason to believe this other than my own enculturation, my own embeddedness. And that really is what you're confronting in this book on pluralism. As you think about this, do you feel like we went through a lull and now in 2022 these issues seem very live again? Not so much a lull as 
a loss of ongoing debate about the foundation ah. documents of the movement while accepting the, the, the ebb and flow of the cultural preferences. In, in other words, um, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you couldn't study an English course or a sociology course or a psych course or a history course at most Western universities without becoming reasonably familiar with Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault and François Lyotard and, and uh, right. earlier than that, the German authors and so on. You just couldn't do it. Nowadays, they're just about unknown in our universities, except in specialist courses. But the effluent from the postmodern scholarship of 40 or 50 years ago is still in full tide uh, so that people have bought into this uh, changed worldview what charles taylor uh, sees as a as an overthrow an overturn of of, mm -hmm. of the givens of, of two centuries back and 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 so it is it is countercultural not only to be a christian it's it's countercultural to, to believe in a personal transcendent god Whereas um, fifty years, uh, hundred fifty years ago, two hundred years ago, it wasn't countercultural to believe in God. You had to ask questions about who He is and whether you understand His revelation and what the Bible is about right. and all the rest. But it wasn't countercultural. Just what everybody believed in God. An atheist was an odd thing. Um, nowadays, to be a Christian who really does hold to the fundamentals of the Christian faith—that's an odd thing. And that was already turning with um, well, Flannery Connor, for example, when mm -hmm. when when she she wrote. Uh, um, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. That's exactly yeah, she was right. already on to and something. That yeah. was 40 years ago. Uh, so uh, we're a bit on the tail end of the tail stream, but the effluent is still strong. Moreover, somewhere along the line, after I wrote The Gagging of God, I wrote the, the book on, uh, on, on uh, intolerance, the intolerance of tolerance. Yep, I got that here also, the intolerance of tolerance. But if I were writing yeah. that today, I would tilt it another way. Um, that book was tilted against the tendency to relativize everything. Right. Uh, in the name of tolerance, to be extremely intolerant. And the tolerance was extremely um, characterized by usurpation. It's taking over mm -hmm. everything. Um, whereas today, it seems to me that there's more subjectivity. You still push tolerance, but tolerance for the things that I want you to be tolerant about. Meanwhile, the other things that I want you to be intolerant about, you need to be intolerant about them or you're at fault. So there's a dogmatism right. adjacent to the alleged tolerance that is basically incoherent. We, 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 we live in an extremely intellectually incoherent time. And um, it, it takes some work in evangelism and and uh, cultural commentary and so on, not to sound easily dismissible. You, you say something and another segment of the society says, well, yes, that's okay for that group, but over here that where I am, that's not where I'm standing, do you see? And, and, and so th there's more confusion, more relativism in some ways, but it's against a background of more absolute dogmatic insistence on, on the non-negotiables of my perspective. And so you're simultaneously right. trying to encourage people to, to to admit they might be wrong, and at the same time trying to insist that there is a right to be held to. Um, and that's a combination that's hard and demanding for any preacher working on with a university crowd today. Yeah, I, I, I think I heard Tim 
Keller say this, I've repeated it since then, that we used to, people used to be very easygoing about the foods they ate and used to be very particular about sex. And now they're very easygoing about who you had sex with. And they're very, very particular about the foods that you ate. That's clever. Yeah. And so the intolerance of, you're you're absolutely right. It's still relevant. It's still there. But in some ways, the cry of moral relativism you go on Twitter, there's not a lot of moral relativists. There's a lot of absolute moral moral absolutists telling you not just that anything goes, but actually what you now believe as a Christian is not just benighted, yeah. but it's bigoted or worse. Yes, agreed. Agreed entirely. Uh, let, let me just, uh, I, I got some lightning round questions for you. Uh, I need to mention one other book by David Mathis. Uh, workers for your joy desiring god is uh encouraging this and i would encourage you to look at it as well you can get it online or westminster books always has great deals but this is a book that is directing our attention to christian leaders to cast a vision from scripture of christ's appointed leaders being workers for the joy of their people we live in a time where it's easy to look down on leaders and anyone holding authority. And this gives us the, the scriptural positive vision that we have leaders, and ultimately they are to work for our joy. So check that out by David Mathis. Don, let me ask, uh, I know books can be sort of like children. You, you don't want to say you have a favorite or an unfavorite, but is there, is there a, one of your books that you really didn't enjoy writing, the process was particularly laborious, and you plowed through it, but there were times you thought, man, I wish I didn't have to do this. I wouldn't put it quite as strongly as that, but both Doug Moo and I, we co-wrote an introduction to the New Testament. Um, yep. Got this wonderful green volume. That's the second, Carson that's Moo, second edition, Morris. and we're working on right. the third edition right now. Um, but both of us agree that that was not the favorite thing that either of us have ever done. Um, it needed to be done. It needs to be done. It needs to be done periodically. And, and uh, so, so I'm, I'm not sorry that we spent the time to, to write, right. but um, talking endlessly about uh, the dating of documents and how you understand the church fathers and so on, um, it has to be done. Students need to become aware of this. Uh, it seems to me questions of so-called New Testament intro um, are cast aside too easily today. You have to think mm-hmm. these things through because biblical Christianity is embedded in history. You cannot duck that, at least not responsibly. And um, and, and yet, I confess, I would rather write a commentary. Yeah. Well, I, I remember working on... Uh, what, what, what is the title of my book? What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality? And that was a book I felt like needed to be written. Crossway asked if I'd write it. I'd written so many blog posts and things over the years, and I thought it would be an easy task of pulling together 10 things I had written, and then I got to it, and this usually happens. If I try to pull something I've already written, I think not, I, I just need to write it from scratch. It's more work to try to repurpose it. And because of that topic in particular, and, uh, you know, getting into some of the the Greek literature, which is so dark on that topic, there were many times I, I felt like, oh, I know this needs to be done, and I hope it will serve the church, but I am not enjoying this process. Conversely, one of the books that of mine that hasn't been a, a, a great bestseller, but is 
near to my heart is uh, the commentary I did on the Heidelberg Catechism. I grew up with the Heidelberg, and I love the Heidelberg. So to introduce people to that was a joy. Do you have a book or two that maybe it, it hasn't been your bestseller or your most famous one, but was really near and dear to your heart to work on? Not just one. Um, for better and for worse, um, I've written books on a wide variety of topics. So some of them are evangelistic, some of them are for pastors, some of them are scholarly volumes and so on. Um, so, so my reasons for enjoying this book or that book varied enormously, and I, I, I can't rank them. Believe it or not, I enjoyed writing a little book on Greek accents. What can I say? Yeah. Some people are odd. Uh, um, no, that's one I don't have, but I, 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 I should. Well, I, when I first was studying Greek, a lot of people were learning Greek without the accents. Um, made made popular as an approach by John Wenham. Um, and so this plugs that gap. And all of our PhD students have to work through it. And you don't, you don't, you don't want for, for Greek professors who can't figure out where the accent goes on a Greek word. Um, right. So, but believe it or not, I enjoyed that. I've got a little twist in my brain that, that enjoys some techie stuff. Um, but on the other hand, um, I suspect I've had more joy out of working through biblical texts, either mm-hmm. short ones like uh, the one on Christian leadership from one Corinthians one to four, and uh, yeah. And or, or long ones like the Matthew commentary. Um, I've enjoyed working on material on the use of the Old Testament and the New. I've devoted a lot of my life to that. Yeah, you have. You got some big books on that. And um, I've enjoyed that, uh, partly because I felt as if I were learning things that I hadn't got elsewhere. Um, when I was writing the Matthew commentary, one of the better old commentaries I plowed through at the time was John Broadus. Um, 19th century Southern Baptist, whose book on Matthew is still worth reading. But many times he comes to the place where John quotes the Old Testament in an obscure fashion and, and says, I don't have a clue what this means, but we know it's the Word of God, so uh, we believe it to be true. Yeah. That's right. Which, which was an edifying, confessional way of approaching things. But I still... But there's more that can be said. I, I still thought that there was probably yeah. more that needed to be said. And... Um, and, and so working on John's use of the Old Testament, uh, Matthew's use of the Old Testament, or more currently Hebrew's use of the Old Testament, to me has been extremely challenging, but also edifying and instructive and, and, and stands behind, uh, in some ways, directly or indirectly, stands behind the series New Studies in Biblical Theology. So uh, Yeah, I didn't even mention that. That has yeah. been, I don't know how many dozens of those gray books I have. It's 60-something that, that are in print now. Yeah, it's been amazing. Uh, A couple of things uh, that I really appreciate about these scripture books, and just so our listeners know, the cross and Christian ministry leadership lessons from 1 Corinthians would be an example, showing the spirit theological exposition of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the book you did on Paul's prayers, more recently, Scandalous, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you have five chapters, which I imagine started out as sermons from Matthew, Romans, Revelation, John 11, John 20. Well, your again, I'm maybe not, it shows that my lack of spirituality. There are a number of 
folks I can think of, good people, but if I saw a new book going through three chapters of the Bible, I would think, eh, I should probably like that, but I probably won't. It's probably going to be something, I probably have thought of that, I've read that. I don't know that I would do anything particularly insightful. But invariably, you've written on these chapters in these little books or bigger books, interesting things, uh, top-notch scholarship of it. But also, Don, you're a very good writer. And I'm not saying that to flatter, because I actually think most people are not very good writers. And I think publishers would tell you the little secret that a lot of the people you read don't actually write very well until they come through a very heavy editing process. But you have a certain verve and turn of the phrase, and I appreciate your economy of words, like this book on Scandalous. You start the chapter on uh, Doubting Thomas. Doubt can have so many causes, number one. I appreciate that, okay? We don't need a story about your dog, unless it's going to fit. You got something to say about doubt, number one. How did you learn to write? Did you read books on writing? Did you have teachers who tell you, told you you're a, a good writer? I think it, it's one of the underdeveloped skills for scholars and even for ministers. I grade my students. I'm very upfront. I'm going to grade you on writing because you look at the people who influence the church for better or worse, it's because they can write. People still read C.S. Lewis because he was a great writer. Tom Wright, with whom both of us would have some disagreements, he's a good writer, and that's why people have, have read him. How, how did you develop as a writer? Who helped you with that? you have any insights for us? Well, you're very kind. Um, my writing has improved over the years. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, th I think the first thing to say is to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. Absolutely. That's the number one thing. And, um, and you just have to keep writing. You, you, have, to, you have to keep reading to, be, to keep writing. Yep. And, um, and I was brought up in a family of books. Uh, so so that, that's part of it. I still read prodigiously today, and not just books for the next Sunday sermon, but, but history and sociology and literature and poetry and mathematics, and I read very widely. And so that has itself helped me to be a little better. And then I've had two or three mentors who have been good. My doctor father at Cambridge was Barnabas Linders. Um, uh, we didn't see eye to eye on all kinds of theological and exegetical things. He was Anglo-Catholic in terms of theological mm. background and very liberal in terms of uh, his own personal commitments and all of that. But he was merciless on extra words. He was a very good editor. And um, so he's sparklingly clear. Um, no sentence is too long. So I kept measuring myself against him. That doubtless shaped me to some extent. I, I owe him a great debt of gratitude, even though he never did come to see eye to eye on a lot of things. And so there have been people like that that I have really appreciated. And um, then I've also found that rewriting is required for good writing. Even, even if your sentences are, are whole and complete and there's you no know, split infinitives and all the rest, um, right. nevertheless, you can polish things, make them better. And to have, a, to have the determination to take the time to edit something 
not the same day, but the next day or the next week, maybe once or twice, uh, inevitably improves things a great deal. And then partly because I have been an editor. I, I edited the Zondervan Study Bible, and uh, I've edited three series. Um, so that, that has forced me to look at other people's writing. And um, so all of those things have had some play in shaping me. I, I feel privileged to, uh, to, to have had uh, so many good uh, influences um, imposed on me. Uh, not always with gratitude at the time, but with <laughs> gratitude in hindsight. Right. It, it really is worthwhile. And, and just to be clear, I don't think everyone has to write. Many people won't have opportunities to to be published. That's great. Most pastors, uh, I mean, most pastors should not be blogging and tweeting. And uh, some do, and, and, and I do, so I hope it's okay for some to do it. But the last thing I want is pastors to think they have an obligation to have uh, a semi-professional writing career. On the other hand, I would say you're going to write. You're going to write a church newsletter. You're going to write emails. You are going to write sermons and talks. And so why not learn how to write better? And one of the keys you said, Don, is almost no one is a good writer. There are just good rewriters. There are, yeah, there are good people. And it, you can't do it right then. You, you wrote it. You need to set it aside. Try to read it out loud. Have a friend who loves you enough to be merciless and tell you bad writing is at the heart, trying to get the reader to doing the work that the writer should have done. I've known of one or two people who've got out a pen longhand in the past and written down a paragraph and that was it. I mean, it was that. C.H. Dodd was like that. Mm. Um, rewriting was not necessary for him, except just marginal. But that is the exception. It's, it's like saying, if you want to be a good preacher, just do exactly what Lloyd-Jones did. Um, there, right. There's some people that are unique for one reason or another. And um, uh, so, so I, I don't want to be absolutist on the rewriting bit. But for most of us who live on lesser planes, uh, rewriting yeah. is part of the discipline of learning to write well. A couple more questions before uh, any number of de Youngs bound in here from school. Uh, I read this in seminary, and it was always a, a joke among us students, but serious, that it was one book we never wanted to end up in. You know which one I'm talking well, about, the exegetical, yeah. exegetical fallacies. This is the second edition. There's probably been more editions since then. Why did you decide to write a book on exegetical fallacies, and did you make enemies, in, including examples from... Uh, I know some of these people, and you knew them too. What was it like to pick examples of fallacies? John Woodbridge and I had become friends when I moved to Trinity. And uh, one of the books he was recommending at the time was a book titled Historian's Fallacies. Ah. And uh, I read it, thought it was funny, um, insightful, um, recommended it to a lot of people. It's still in print. Um, but it made me think almost on the spot. Somebody needs to do that about exegesis. So I was asked to give a series of lectures at another seminary, and I decided that I would make that the, the, the topic. And I was so pressed for time that I outlined a lot of stuff on scrappy paper, and then it took me actual four days to write four chapters, one chapter a day, and that was the oh, really? of that book. Um, and then I sat down and polished it and enlarged it a bit, and then eventually... Uh, uh, 
who put in a second edition and changed a lot of the examples and so on. But that's how that book came about. And it, it, I tried to make it humorous enough that it didn't bite in, in a mean right. way, but, but got the point across. And um, so I, I, I certainly didn't try and score points. But, um, but yeah, probably some people wish they hadn't appeared in it. That's probably correct. Well, don't don't do any more additions now that I have written books. So you can just uh, glad that came out before I had anything. Uh, so there's a lot of books I wanted to mention. We're running out of time. Your Christ and Culture Revisited, I, I think, repays reading. Uh, becoming conversant with the emerging church. I read that, and then I wrote a book on the emerging church, and this was very helpful. You were really, for a time, nobody had written any sort of response except that you had done this, and I think this came out of some lectures. At least I listened to your lectures as well. If I had to pick a theme from your writing ministry, Don, and there's more than 50 books, and there's scads of things you've edited, and there's hundreds of articles, so we've we've only hit on very few. But it seems to me uh, that your the, the bullseye for Don Carson is commenting on Scripture, but also the doctrine of Scripture. So this book, Collected Writings of Scripture, that Crossway put out, this is an excellent book pulling together many of different chapters and things you've written on Scripture. I know you worked on this for a long time, Erdman's published it, The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures. You can't see because you're listening to this, but this is a massive scholarly book, over a thousand pages. And the two volumes of yours that I think, or the very first D.A. Carson things I ever read, was with John Woodbridge, the Scripture and Truth book that you edited, and then Hermeneutics, Authority, and Canon, which I was in college, and I was getting more of a liberal take on things at my college. And uh, not a crisis of faith, but I was really wrestling with, how do I make sense of the canon? How do I look at the way the New Testament uses the old? And both of these volumes were really, really helpful for me when I went through this. Uh, I could go on and on. Did you set out consciously to make this a theme of your ministry? Do you think this is one of the big things you've done is pay attention to an evangelical doctrine of Scripture? It's something which, in retrospect, I see that I have done. But I, 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 I claim no prescience. It's not as if, at the age of 25, I, did, I, I said I'm going to become the dominant voice in my generation on the doctrine of Scripture. I just never, mm-hmm. never thought in those terms at all. Um, but I kept seeing the need for things, and um, working with others, and, and so on. John Woodbridge and I tended to spark off each other. That helped as well. And um, so, yeah, in retrospect, I can see that it has, as you say, become something of a center point for me. Um, Doctrinally, I could see that if you muss that one up, um, a lot is going to go by the side very quickly. And it's not just a, a theoretical thing. Do you theoretically hold to a theoretical doctrine called inerrancy? But right. it's how you handle Scripture. It's whether you, you tremble and fear at the Word of God. To this man will I look. He was of a contrite spirit and he trembles at my word. So that in recent years I've tried to emphasize that aspect of things too. You, you're not going to have a good doctrine of Scripture if you're shacked up with your secretary. Um, 
it's it's life is complex and it's it's interwoven and um and so, yeah your intellectual ideas follow your moral life you know, correct they do yeah and people don't account for that they sometimes wonder why did this person how did he end up in such a weird place yeah. intellectually yeah. yeah that's exactly yeah. right do you have uh so last question of all these things you've written this is an impossible question but do you have a favorite maybe isn't the right word is there is there a book that you think is when people think da carson they think of a certain book whether it's your favorite or it's been the bestseller what's sort of the the classic carson text that's out there i really can't answer that um and it's it's not only because of the disparity of kinds of things that I've written, but also because um, what I, many students come and ask you, uh, if I've got to read two books by Carson, what would they be? Right. And I would say, you need to ask that question of somebody who knows you as well as somebody who knows literature. The point is, I would say to such a student, I don't know you. I don't know what you've already read. I don't know where your interests lie. Are you given to theory and and, and, and uh, need some help with the practice? Or are you given to practice and really don't understand the underlying theory? Uh, are you a disciplined person or are you not? And um, what, how much education have you already had? And, 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 and so on. So I, I just don't know how to answer that. I'm not trying to duck it. I just I don't have a clue how to answer it. So, okay. Well, I said that was my final question, but I'll, I'll try to give you a, a, a question that you can answer. Um, what is just thinking of writing? It could be something you're writing or something that you're not going to write that someone else. Give me a book that you want to see somebody write to, to, to speak to. It can be a scholarly issue, current issue. Maybe you're going to do it. Maybe somebody will do it when we're both long gone. You got something out there that some erstwhile person, you just, the church needs this book or kind of book. I, I don't mean to duck, but uh, when you say what the church needs, sometimes the church needs things that the church doesn't know that it needs. Right. And that generates one list. And at other times, the church transparently needs, church transparently needs some things that engage contemporary cultural slides from a confessional point of view. Some of the kind of things that, oh, that is the young chap writes, or, or that Keller writes, yeah. that are within the bounds of historic orthodoxy, but don't sound like yesteryear and are trying to address contemporary issues. Um, those, those things uh, are always needed, but, what, but most of them won't last all that long. That, that is, they'll, they'll, they'll function well for two years. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, depending on what the book is, what the topic is. Right. But the book, the, the church also needs some things that will last, God willing, for three or 400 years. There's always a place for somebody to think through, what does the next institutes look like? Um, but that's the sort of thing that a person, uh, Calvin was 26 when his first edition came out. Um, most people try to... Yeah, that's hardly fair. <laughs> most, yeah. most people thinking about writing an institute's volume today shouldn't even start thinking about it until they're 50 or 60 and have a, a, a lifetime's reading and meditation and reflection behind it, the kind of things that a Sinclair Ferguson can put forth today. Yeah. Um, 
it is really worth thinking in those categories. You know, you think tweeting and such that you can do it in an edifying way. I mean, a tweet is writing for the moment. Yes. I mean, really, it is gone. Okay. A, a blog article, an opinion piece might be writing for the week. And you need some yeah. of that. And then you can ramp up, you know, a, a, a Themelios article or something that's maybe writing for the season or for the year. A book, yeah, if, if it's good, it maybe serves the Lord in five or ten years and some last longer. But we do need people. I think we have a lot of people who are doing the, right now, I'm going to say something to this today. I'm going to give a hot take on Twitter, on a podcast. And look, I do those things, so I'm not against all those things. But we we, we likely need more people, as you said, Don, thinking what kind of books might last by God's grace to serve the church decades and even beyond that. So I'm really grateful because uh, only the Lord knows. But in his kindness, I think some of yours will serve the church in that way. And we, we do pray that the Lord would give you years and health and strength to finish off some of these projects that you're working on for the for the love of God and the commentaries and some of the other things. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for all the, all the times that we've been able to be at events together and conferences. And it's a delight. Thank you for coming on Life and Books and Everything. And until next time, I hope all of our listeners out there will glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. Thanks for having me. Blessings on you, brother. Thank you. Thank you.